Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-doomsday movie, not the event. Pro John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. I don't know. I've seen what the direction we're heading in as a society. I'm starting to begin to become pro-doomsday in all senses of the word. He's edging towards pro-cataclysm. So this week we have watched something of a much different tone. Hey Lawson, this uh, wasn't funny. No. Funny games. They were games, but they're not much fun. Yeah, probably the nastiest movie we've ever talked about on the podcast. Mm. Or at least I would as, say a deep, so. as a deep dive. It, it's definitely the best English version of a film that the director also has directed oh, with Naomi Watts in it. This <laughs> yes. is better... He's comparing it to The Ring. No, this is better than Down. Down. The elevator one. Oh, Down. Down, right. Yes, That's this is a Naomi high... Naomi Watts and was directed by the person who directed the non-English language version. Yes, yes, true. That took longer than I needed it to be because <laughs> I forgot Naomi Watts' name. Off to a great start today. If I had a dollar for every time that's happened, I'd have two dollars, but it's still weird that it happened mm. anyway. She's in a lot of English language versions. This is a much better movie than, than Down, but uh, <laughs> this also does not feature a possessed elevator being shot at with a bazooka, so I'm not sure whether we can really say for certain whether it is of a higher quality or not. It's, diff- it's, it's apples and oranges, man. I'm just saying, would this movie not have been improved by the presence of a possessed elevator that gets shot with a bazooka? Every movie is improved by that, Lawson, but it's like, it is apples and oranges. It's like... Judging a chocolate bar on the same metric that you judge a spaceship. Every movie is better with a bazooka. It just depends on, one of the, on whether it fits or not. As you may have gotten through all that nonsense, we have watched Funny Games, directed by Mikhail Haneke. This is the English language remake that he did. Shot it is shot. almost almost shot for yeah. shot. Uh, as close to shot for shot as humanly possible, outside of being Gus Van Sant. Oh, Gus Van Sant did different things. <laughs> Gus Van Sant I know, but... added some things that weren't necessarily to the benefit of the film. But yeah, we'll talk about funny games. Uh, before we start talking about that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, first off, I actually have something that is not part of the list to talk about, but it's also not a new movie. Uh, it is a movie that I watched with my 81-year-old grandmother for her birthday. It is Nine to Five, the Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin comedy from 1980. Like the song. Yes, this is where the song is from. Yeah. But it's a, a comedy movie directed by Colin Higgins. It follows three female employees, Judy, played by Jane Fonda, Violet, played by Lily Tomlin, and Doralee, played by Dolly Parton. And they're all working for this misogynistic twit named Mr. Hart. He's played by Dabney Coleman. And they all have fantasies of revenge and how much better they could do their jobs if he wasn't getting in their way at all times. But there are some fairly wacky sitcomish things that happen that cause events to spiral out of control and it ends up being this sort of satire of you know workplace gender politics of the 70s and 80s it's pretty fun it holds up very well kind of disturbingly well actually because even though it was made in 1980 it's set in 1980 42 years ago now i mean a lot of the gender politics stuff still applies a lot of the stuff about 
glass ceilings and women not being treated seriously in the workplace, stuff like that is still unfortunately quite current. There's a, a loose narrative structure that that's all based around. It's it's broadly episodic, but it takes its time. There's a lot of character work. There's a lot of scenes between the women, between them and Hart, and that mostly works. You get very good chemistry between all of the performers. You get some interesting character development that comes through those scenes. But ultimately, I think it could have been quicker. The pace is just a bit weird. I mean, there's this one sequence where it just stops and one by one goes through these extended like three or four minute fantasy sequences about all of the different ways that they'd terrorize their boss if they had the opportunity and it sort of just kills the pace dead for like this 15 minute stretch i mean it's just a weird spot and there are a few little things like that you're just like this could have been shaved off and instead of being like almost two hours long this could have been a 90 minute movie that really moved but there's some very good performances fonda is playing against type as this sort of mousy housewife who this is her first job tomlin and parton are both great fun and i've got to give dabney coleman credit for being the most game team player like he's up for anything he will make himself look so unlikable so stupid it's it's sort of an egoless performance given you know there are these sequences where he's yeah it's it's a very it's it's the definition of a of a top tier supporting supporting performance for a movie like this but it, it all wraps up a little too conveniently it's a little too clean and neat and sudden it could have gone for something a little Maybe a little darker, a little more absurd, but obviously, you know, you can't talk about the movie without talking about the title song, which was written for the movie and plays over the opening credits. Uh, It was actually nominated for the Oscar for Best Song, but lost to the title song from Fame, which is about the only song that it could have lost to and still be a justifiable choice. And I mean, it's Dolly Parton. She's a legend. It is available for streaming in Australia on Disney Plus and Foxtel now, if anybody's interested. Meanwhile, stuff I watched as part of the list, and definitely not with my 81-year-old grandmother, Forgetting Sarah Marshall is a comedy directed by Nicholas Stoller. Uh, It follows a guy named Peter, played by Jason Siegel. He breaks up with his longtime girlfriend, Sarah, played by Kristen Bell, who has left him for a rock star called Aldous Snow, played by Russell Brand. And Peter's reeling from this, so he decides to go to Hawaii on a vacation. But when he gets there, Sarah and Aldous Snow are already there, and things are awkward. But then Peter starts to get the hots for a hotel employee called Rachel played by Mila Kunis. This is just not my thing. I think that whole decade, that first decade of the 2000 to 2010, that whole stretch of R-rated comedies is a miss for me. It's just not connecting with me. There's a lot of cringe humour in this. I never unclenched. It's not bad. It's just not for me. It's too crass. It's too awkward. It does have a tighter script than most of these really improv-driven Judd Apatow produced things, and you get some great performances. Kristen Bell and Mila Kunis are particularly good, and uh, Russell Brand grows on you as the movie goes on. It's it's he's just this sort of puppy dog. I mean, he's an idiot, but he's like this decent guy at the center of it, which is an interesting take on the 
I mean, the home wrecker rock star that comes in and steals the girlfriend kind of thing. I mean, he's just kind of a moron. But it really, at the at the center of it, it's all about relationships and breakups and the question of, you know, is a person right for you just because you've been in a long-term relationship with them or are you just familiar with them? Are you just comfortable with their presence? And Sarah has shades too. They don't make her the shrewish ex-girlfriend, you know. They don't make her the bitch. They give her a lot of dimension, but... My biggest frustration with the movie, the thing I really couldn't forgive it for, was that it wimps out at the end. It wants to dimensionalise her, but at the end it, it also wants us to celebrate her discomfort. And I couldn't really get behind that, especially given all of the good character work that it had been doing for her up until then. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel now, if anyone's interested. I, of course, therefore had to watch the spin-off, Getting to the Greek Again, directed by Stoller. And in this one, Aaron, played by Jonah Hill, who is playing a completely different character from the one he played in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He's an assistant at a record label company, and he is tasked with transporting a spiralling Aldous, played by once again by Brand, to the Greek theatre for a big anniversary concert. This is darker. It's it's more my style, but it's less fun than the first movie. It's actually got a lot of serious themes in it, all, all this stuff about the price of fame loneliness, shallow relationships, substance abuse. It's pretty serious-minded about a lot of that stuff, and it's all couched in this buddy comedy dynamic that is quite effective. Hill and Brand have chemistry. And Hill is good here. I rarely like him in, in anything. I really dislike his sort of angry, belligerent asshole routine, but he is good when he is not being made to be so forcefully crass and jerkish all of the time. And it's trying for for matching themes between him and Aldous, between, you know, they're, they're sort of trying to juggle work and relationships. I mean, they've got these girlfriends, Elizabeth Moss for Jonah Hill and Rose Byrne for Aldous Snow, and their relationships with them, there's sort of a parallel there. Other than that, though, the movie is sort of formless. There are a whole lot of escapades uh, that some of them are fun, some of them are less fun, but it needed tightening. And it's maybe a little more funny, at least from my perspective, but it's way nastier in its sense of humour. It has a lot less, I wouldn't say less sympathy for its characters, but it has a, a, it's a lot more willing to put them through the ringer. Sean Combs ends up being kind of a surprise scene stealer in a supporting role. He gets the movie's best laughs. But I had a bit of a problem with the musical numbers that we see Aldous Snow perform in the movie. We see quite a lot of them, and they're too silly, I think. They sort of broke the illusion for me that this could be a real story. And and they try and convince us that this is taking place in the real world. There are a lot of cameos from famous singers and musicians and people like that. And if I'm to believe that, that this guy is someone who parties with Pink, you know, who is in the real world, but then sings what is clearly a parody song, then that that I'm supposed to take that people treat it seriously as a serious rock song and not as a weird owl kind of kind of thing. Yeah. It, I don't know. It just it, it proved to be a tripwire that I wasn't expecting but I also couldn't help but being yeah. stumbled because of. The ending's kind of rushed too, kind of dishonest. I mean it, again it, it 
struggles to wrap everything up really neatly in a way that I don't think does justice to the darker themes that it's been dealing with. But if anyone wants to check it out, uh, I mean, you can watch it independent of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and it's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel Now. Lastly this week, I watched a movie called Pathology. It is a thriller film directed by Mark Scholleman, and it follows a student doctor named Ted who's played by Milo Ventimiglia. He is a pathology doctor, meaning he is a coroner, basically, or he works in the morgue. He comes in, he tries to figure out what killed a person. And he's doing this new training program in a Washington hospital. And he gets caught up participating in this group of fellow residents who are all psychopaths, who are all taking part in this game to commit undetectable murders. So they will commit a murder and then one of them will commit a murder and then when the body comes into the hospital, the others have got to figure out who, how they did it. And let me tell you this, this guy, Ted, is way too easily convinced to start killing people. But anyways, that spirals out of control as the ringleader of this little gang of lunatics, Jake, played by Michael Weston, grows erratic. This movie is actually, I think, nastier than Funny Games because it is cruel and mean and provocative, but there's no point. Funny Games has a point. This doesn't. It's just a parade of awfulness and awful characters with no one to sympathise with whatsoever. The MPAA description includes the phrase disturbing and perverse behaviour throughout, which is pretty accurate. They're just such profoundly unlikable characters. There's no one in this movie that you can get behind. Everyone, including Ted, ostensibly the protagonist, is an absolute lunatic. The fact that he is just so easily convinced to start killing people is an absurd notion that never gets explored. Milo Ventimiglia plays him with a consistency of expression that suggests the wind changed direction while he was scowling. <laughs> and it just spouts this nonsense nihilism as if it was saying something. As I mean, it's the sort of thing that a goth 13-year-old would say. I mean, it's all this stuff about how, oh, you know, humans, you know, they're the real parasites on Earth and who cares if we get rid of a few of them, blah, blah, blah. You know, life is about power and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's nonsense. And there's just... Never anything to say about any of the characters. Not a single one of them. You will never understand Ted. Michael Weston is just crazy. Like, he is the only one that gets any sort of character development in the sense that he is kind of crazy and losing control. And that is helpfully communicated through the clever shorthand casting of Michael Weston. But other than that, I mean, it's pretty grisly. There's lots of medical gore. It's actually really unsettling because there's a sort of satisfaction in the way that the movie's handling it, as if it's taking pleasure out of just doing this really gross clinical kind of like, now we're going to zoom in on this lady's chest getting sliced open and then the little clips that do the rib cage come out and it's like, you're getting too much out of this. It is it is kind of fascinating in a dark way. There, there are some twists and turns that are okay. I mean, that's the thing, is you can see a version of this movie in your head that had a better script and treated its characters better and wasn't quite as creepily thrilled about all of the medical cutting and dicing. You can imagine a version of this story that is decent and compelling and might even, God help us, have something to say. But 
Instead, it's just a really shallow exercise in shock value, and I, I can't recommend it. But that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Right, so the first thing we watched is something I've been looking forward to getting to. We watched Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, directed by Johannes Roberts. Once the booming home of pharmaceutical giant Umbrella Corporation, Raccoon City is now a dying Midwestern town. The company's exodus left the city a wasteland with a great evil brewing beneath the surface. Did you know that this giant company was poisoning the citizens? Hmm, not as fictional as you'd like. When that evil is unleashed, the townspeople are forever changed, and a small group of survivors must work together to uncover the truth behind Umbrella and make it through the night. This is a Resident Evil movie. Not what we had before. There's this actual interest in... Not only the tone of the original games and their remakes, but also with the story that the games are telling. This isn't Paul W.S. Anderson trying to make his own additions to the lore. This is an adaptation of lore already present. And I really, really enjoyed this. It's the best Resident Evil movie. I'm not saying much, it's a very, very low bar, but I, I was able to have fun with this one, you know? It's a Resident Evil movie. In everything that that means, silly plot devices, sort of half-baked characters, a script that has to be heard to be believed, kind of dodgy special effects. It's a 90s movie released in the 2020s, and for that I love it. Outstanding use of Any Way You Want It by yeah. Journey. Yes. Like, I just had a really great time with it. Raccoon City is not like a... City City. It's more like, it's a factory. But I had a really, really great time with this. The visual element of the movie is where it's at its most successful. Yeah. The recreations of locations, the Spencer Mansion and the RPD are just incredibly well translated. And what's most remarkable about that is most of it is CG for the Spencer Mansion and the RPD, which is frankly remarkable. I love the design of the zombie dog, the kind of grayish eyes. I love the costumes that characters are wearing, both Clay Redfield played by Kaya Scodelario and, and Avon Georgia as Leon Kennedy. Their costumes are perfect translations of the remake of Resident Evil 2, where Robbie Amell as Chris Redfield looks almost exactly yeah. like Chris Redfield from the original. Yeah, it is kind of smushing the first two games story yeah. together because they both yeah. take place on the same night. Like it's 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 condensed. It's a it's a lot more low key than the games. There's no Mr. X, there's no giant snakes and lizards and stuff. There's none of those little elements, but what is here is really successful. We do get a giant monster uh, in the form of William Birkin. Dr. William Birkin, who this time is played by Neil McDonough. Is that maybe a spoiler that he turns into a giant monster? It's a game, though. It's Resident Evil. Yeah. I love how they physically translated the character, because he's got the giant bloody arm with the eyes on it. Yeah. I love that, that shit. That made Harley so happy. I liked Donald Logue here, because he's just fed up with everyone's bullshit. Chief Irons here is a better person than he is in the games by a long shot. I also quite liked the other supporting characters. Anna John Kamen as Jill Valentine. She's a different Jill than I'm used to, but I'm here for it because she's a little more interesting this time around. Jill Sandwich. Tom Hopper as Albert Wesker is the most interesting translation here. Albert Wesker in the original game is full stop 
an umbrella plant. 100% knows who he is and what all of this means, but here he's a lot more conflicted. You could tell he actually has a friendship and relationship with all of the members of Stars, and that he just wants to get out of this shithole town so he can have a life elsewhere. Uh, but I quite liked him. I just... It was so good just watching a Resident Evil movie that cared about being Resident Evil. It's for sure the best Resident Evil project that Paul W.S. Anderson has been attached to. Yeah, you can hear my thoughts on it back on our episode on King Kong. I talked about it in the what we've been watching there. I'm not nearly as hot on it as you are. Um, I do agree with you that it's the best Resident Evil movie, but like you said, that's a, a fairly low bar. But yeah. I look, I continue to think that the obvious best Resident Evil movie is right there, and they... They continue to insist on not making it. Where is the A24-style, brutal Resident Evil 4 adaptation? I mean, that's sort of a standalone story in the games. Where is the story? You could just make it as a standalone movie. Where is the really grim, gothic story? I want them to do Village. Yeah, like, there are so many ways you could... that They keep tying themselves to the sort of pulpy, cartoonish stuff when I think that they could. I mean... That would have been a more interesting direction, I think, for me, is to do something entirely different. And then you get all of this stuff with the Netflix series and... I haven't seen it, but I'm confused by the plot synopsis. I'm not the hottest on post-apocalyptic Resident Evil. Well, it's like a dual timeline thing. Hmm. Yeah, but still, I... I'd be willing to give it a shot. I really like this one because it just commits to being Resident Evil, you know? And they've said that the production company is quite pleased with how it turned out on, not in cinemas, of course, but on home release and the online rentals. So they're going to make another, which will be adapting, I believe, Code Veronica, mm. which is obviously the next space to go because you can't do number three. You can't do Nemesis with what happens at the end of this one. And after that, they said they want to do four. See, I don't want these people to make four, though. I want, like, Ari Aster to make four. This is a movie that features an admittedly awesome sequence of Carnage set to any way you want it. That's not the tone that I want for the adaptation of Resident Evil 4. And I don't... No. I don't, tr I don't care how, how at arm's length he is. I don't want any adaptation of Resident Evil 4 with the name Paul W.S. Anderson on it. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want it attached at all. Hmm. But I think... Where we leave off here is pretty promising, and I'm going to wrap up my thoughts on this with two things. You can find it on Amazon Prime, streaming in Australia, but also itchy tasty. We have also watched something else, Sean. We have watched a short anthology series on Shudder called Deadhouse Dark. It is a series of Australian short films that, at this point in the anthology, hasn't been tied together, but apparently they tie the episodes together with a narrative in the last three episodes we watched the first three titled dash cam no pain no gain and the staircase i'm sorry that's i'm gonna need you to say the full for full title for dash cam dash cam underscore zero one three underscore 2019 1031.mp4 are you happy yes accuracy matters sean but anyway this is a series of short Australian horror films, and this is really interesting because there's a lot of really cool ideas here. In Dashcam, there's a very interesting crime and punishment 
if that makes sense. And there's a sort of a nasty twist at the end of it, which is bordering on undeserved, which I think is what horror should do sometimes, that these people don't deserve it. And oftentimes they don't, but I thought that this was really sort of nasty and ended on a pretty sad note that you you do see coming, but it works for you. The Staircase is the third episode, and it follows a group of vloggers who venture down a mysterious staircase to go searching for someone who they've heard yelling out for help. And that one ends pretty nastily as well, even though it's very obvious that the main vlogger character is definitely a satire and parody a winking parody of, you know, your Jake Pauls, your Logan Pauls. The whole thing I got from it was very much Logan Paul's Suicide Forest. Yeah. Mm. Like, that's the energy this dude really gave off. And I have to say, his performance, spot, spot on to that vibe. He doesn't wear the stupid hat, which I would have loved, but, you know, you can't tie it all together. It's a little too obvious. It, it lacks a bit of subtlety, but I understand what it's trying to do. And it led Harley and I to theorize what Satan would be like as a social media influencer. Would he be the kind to get a bunch of people to live in a house together so they can play pranks on each other? Would he be the kind to pretend that he can now see color for the first time? Would he get into a boxing match? I think he'd run for president and ultimately be banned from the platforms. Hey guys, welcome to House 666. I'm here with my boys Lucifer and Beelzebub. We're going to play pranks <laughs> on each other. We're going to throw Azazel into a tub of ice. It's going to be fucking rad. We're going to try and convince this one lady to eat an apple. <laughs> hey, guys. The greatest con that's ever been pulled. You know? It's just a prank, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a prank, God. Garden of Eden prank gone sexy, gone wrong. <laughs> But the best of these short films so far is No Pain, No Gain. It stars Gemma Bird Matheson as a young woman who really just wants to succeed at competitive running and is desperate to win at any cost. And it is inspired by the real-life Blue Whale Suicide Social Media Challenge, which I'm sure some listeners are aware of all of these online semi-hoaxes, creepypastas turned real kind of situations where people have manipulated young people into self-harming. This is the best of the sequences so far because it touches on how predatory and how manipulative some people can be on the internet. And it shows a very vulnerable young woman being manipulated by a very bad, bad person. And it ends with a very serious moment of reflection and acknowledgement and is held together by a very strong performance from Gemma Bird Matheson, who uh, we will be seeing in our watching of Neighbours. She plays one of the character's girlfriends. Hmm. So that's interesting. And it also ends with a very, very beautifully and a replacement of helpline services and 
phone numbers and email addresses and websites. Yeah, the, the people who made this segment knew what their story was exactly. about. There's a lot of care taken to making this seem... Like it, yeah. it, it's a deeply allegorical story. The the other two were a lot more literal. Yeah, this one was like straight up allegory, and that's one of the strengths that horror has, especially in the short form format. You can do things that in a longer way would be too drawn out. I like concise horror. Yeah, but this was very well handled, and I appreciated that a lot. And I love seeing Aussie horror. Yeah, and I love seeing sort of you know, Screen Australia and Screen Queensland present such and such. Because it always makes me feel a little bit of, I don't know, pride pride for where I'm from. But not in, like, a weird way. Just gotta in like put a- that out there. Yeah, yeah, sort of a, oh, that's neat. That's where some of my tax <laughs> money is going towards, not in a bad way. But you can find these on Shudder, which is a great place to find anthology stuff. Yeah, really strong anthology game. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Now we will play for you the trailer to Funny Games. Sorry to disturb you, I'm staying next door. Please, come in. Wow, that's a really great set of clubs. Mr. Farber. What? You want to call someone? An ambulance? Or, or the police? Why are you doing this? Have a seat. Please. I'm Paul. We're going to make a bet now. You bet that you'll be alive tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and we bet that you'll be dead. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch the tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. <laughs> Why don't you just kill us? You shouldn't forget the importance of entertainment. have done that, Anne. Keep me safe all through the night. (laughs) That's awesome, really. Really. That was the trailer for Funny Games. It is a satirical horror movie directed by Mikhail Haneke, and it is a shot-for-shot remake of his 1997 film of the same name. It has an extremely straightforward plot. Anne, played by Naomi Watts, her husband George, played by Tim Roth, and their young son Georgie, played by Devin Gearhart, have just arrived at their lake house, where they look forward to a relaxing weekend of rich people activities like boating and playing tennis with their equally rich neighbours. 
They can't get over how weird their friends were when they pulled over to make plans with them as they arrived, though. Plus, they can't help but wonder who the two young men hovering behind them were. They'll soon find out, because as the evening approaches, Paul, played by Michael Pitt, and Peter, played by Brady Corbett, come to visit them. Though they initially claim to be there to borrow eggs for the neighbours' dinner, they are actually psychopaths intent on terrorising the family, which they helpfully make obvious by killing the dog with a golf club and beating George badly. Petrified, the family is forced to participate in a twisted set of encounters that Paul and Peter have cooked up, ranging from hazing to bizarre conversational traps. To survive, Anne, George and their terrified son must use their wits, but is a happy outcome even possible? We're forced to wonder, because Paul in particular seems strangely aware that he is in a movie, and as the night goes on, he makes us question whether we are participants in this ourselves. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of funny games. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. There were games, but they ain't that funny, guys. This is so dark and cynical and grim. It's bordering on nihilistic, but it's doing its cruelties for a reason. It's a comment on violence in the media and the way that people act about it. A lot of the violence is off-screen. We see the effects of it. And I feel like that is a very pointed decision from Henneke. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This was very, very interesting. I think it kind of drags in the second half after one particular event occurs. But like John said, it is a commentary on maybe not just violence in media, but more specifically violence on film and what the audience is here for. I think it was tense and very well performed. All right, let me cue myself up here. I think this is a a kind of an incredible movie. It's incredibly well made. It's very well acted, but it is sort of just poking you constantly and asking you, why do you like this? Why are you watching horror movies? And that is some of the most interesting stuff. I disagree with you, Harley. I think the second half is the better half. But I, I think some of what it does there is just so extraordinary and so uncompromising. And really, I think the way that it just challenges the audience at all possible moments is, is some of its most interesting stuff. Before we begin, this is a little off topic, but I've got, I, I need for you to experience what I experienced this morning because Mikhail Haneke is an Austrian filmmaker. I wasn't entirely sure how to pronounce his name, so I did my due diligence as a amateur podcaster and I looked it up. And so this was the first thing I heard. Mikhail Haneke. I'm like, okay. That makes sense, but I will just double check and I will see what what else is is up here. So this is the second one. <laughs> Pretty sure that's not right. Yeah, I feel like he wouldn't appreciate <laughs> them saying his name like that. I wouldn't appreciate anyone saying my name like that. Sounds like they're taking the piss. Yeah, I've got to I've got to suspect that Mickey, that's a joke. <laughs> I, I've got to believe that's a joke. I went with the first pronunciation. It would be weird to have to pronounce his last name. <laughs> not sustainable. It's, it's, it's not sustainable because as Lawson just shown, 
If you say, Inuki, you just, it's too funny. It ruins the tension of whatever you're talking about. So, definitively, and yes, we three people are going to decide that here and now, his name is Mikhail Henneke. Not Henneke. Hanukkah. 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 Mikhail okay. Hanukkah. Anyways, I have a production history here. Mikhail Hanukkah is an Austrian director and screenwriter. He got a reputation for provocative films fairly early on in his career. His first movie is about a family planning to commit group suicide. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. There have been many of his movies that have undergone a lot of scrutiny and controversy and over its their challenging themes, but the one in particular that seems to be a precursor to Funny Games is a 1992 film called Benny's Video. It is about a psychopathic teenager obsessed with filming things and with violent images, and eventually he films himself murdering a classmate to, quote, see what it was like. Hanukkah has gotten more mainstream in the years since. He's actually been nominated for Oscars, but he still has an edge, though, in pretty much all of the movies that he does. In 1997, he released Funny Games, the German-language film that this movie we're talking about today is based on. His stated intent was to provoke the audience by making an incredibly violent but otherwise pointless film. It was a criticism of screen violence. I do have a, a quote from Hanukkah on the 2007 film, which is applicable to the original as well because obviously it's a shot for shot remake quote of course the film is a provocation it's meant as a provocation and of course all the rules that usually make the viewer go home happy and contented are broken in my film there's this unspoken rule that you can't harm animals what do i do i kill the dog first thing the same thing with the boy you're not supposed to break the illusion what do i do i break the illusion it's the principle of the whole film it's a very ironic film. He'd actually originally wanted that original version to be a US film and to be set in the US and I, I assume spoken in English, but practicalities at the time prevented that. Austrian critics received the original version of Funny Games. Generally, they, they looked at it as a subversion of a local genre called Heimatfilm. In English, that is literally homeland films. They sprung up in Germany and surrounding areas after World War II and they're, you know, basically a fantasy. You know, what if this awful thing ha hadn't happened? You know, they're sort of cosy, comfortable, forget your troubles, forget the war. Here's a nice peaceful story in a rural setting. They're sentimental. They idealize the countryside. They focus on love and friendship. Hanukkah has actually returned to subvert this since with a, a movie he made in 2009 called The White Ribbon, which was his first like breakthrough into the mainstream, really, in, in English-language countries. It got nominated for Oscars, but it is about a rural German town in the lead-up to World War One, and it deals with sort of creeping extremism and sort of the dark underbelly of that environment, that Heimat film sort of... Again, it's it's a an idealised thing. What Downton Abbey is, I suppose, to the British. <laughs> but Funny Games got the reaction Haneke wanted. Audiences were both impressed and horrified when it was first shown at the Cannes Film Festival, a third of the audience walked out. You hear about that a lot at Cannes, mm. don't you? A lot of walkouts, a lot of uncommitted people. Well, it's not necessarily that. That it's it's it, that the French film community has a different way of expressing. It's a different cultural way of expressing their feelings about a movie. That's why you get a lot of booze at Cannes as well, where you don't at at some other film festivals. It's just. The local culture is you're, you're more vocal and you're more expressive about your reaction to the film. But I can also absolutely see why a certain type of person would walk out of this film. The same type of person that walked out of Wolf Creek or 
or any of these other things. At that same time, you gotta come to expect that at con. You gotta expect transgressive works. So I, I don't know how people keep getting surprised. Legendary French New Wave director Jacques Rivette was particularly incensed. I have a quote here from him. What a disgrace. Just a complete piece of shit. I liked his first film, The Seventh Continent, very much, and then each one after that I liked less and less. This one is vile. He said he hated it for moral reasons, apparently not understanding that the whole point of the movie was to criticise the violence. <laughs> but it received an overall lukewarm reception once you factor people like Rivette in. The Rotten Tomatoes summary for that movie, that original movie, calls it a nihilistic experiment, which I think is, is a fairly decent description. Yeah. But it has since been made part of the Criterion Collection. Haneke never forgot the potential for a US setting, though. He thought it hadn't found the audience he most wanted to talk to, which was the US mainstream consumer of slash films and action films and thriller films. Ten years later, he managed to get an English-language remake off the ground. He insisted that Naomi Watts be in it, for he had been a fan of hers and that was actually one of his stipulations for doing it is that he'd only do the remake if Naomi Watts was in it and Naomi Watts actually became so involved that she's a producer on this movie yeah doing a lot for the film that most producers wouldn't there's very little information about the production of this remake specifically but it is pretty much 99% shot for shot they changed virtually nothing they actually used the original blueprints for building the sets for the original movie to make the sets for this remake and you can see screenshot comparisons on the internet and i'm sure video comparisons as well that will show you just how completely the interior is almost identical yeah hanake has matched it i mean that was the point he said that he had nothing to add so why would he bother changing anything it would just be changed for the point of change he said what he wanted to say all he wanted to do was get it to a wider audience that wouldn't watch foreign language films and that was why he made it. But there are some outstanding retrospective quotes from Hanake that he uh, he said during an Entertainment Weekly interview with a journalist named Clark Collis. Collis says, There are points in Funny Games when Michael Pitt's home-invading character breaks the fourth wall and suggests, in effect, that he wouldn't be committing these terrible acts if we, the audience, weren't watching. You seem to be basically encouraging people to leave the cinema. Is that a fair thing to do to people who have spent ten bucks to see a film? To which Hanake laughed and said, I always say those who watched the film to the end apparently needed it. Those who leave earlier apparently didn't. Collis then adds, One of my female colleagues saw the film to the end and left in tears, partly because she regretted not leaving before. How do you feel about provoking that kind of reaction? You mean to say she had tears in her eyes because she didn't leave earlier? Yes. Well, if someone has such a degree of self-pity, then I can't have pity on her. Yo. <laughs> The film made its first debut at the London Film Festival on the 20th of October 2007, and it received a limited release in the United States on the 14th of March 2008. It came out in only 288 theatres, and it launched 21 at the box office against Horton Hears a Who, Never Back Down, and Doomsday. It was a financial failure. It made $8.2 million worldwide on a $15 million budget. But then again, this seems like the kind of movie that's designed to make a profit on the back end through DVD sales and obviously now through streaming and, yeah. and digital purchases. It received a tiny theatrical run in Australia where it came out on the 11th of September 2008. It was shown in only 19 theatres here, but it opened a little bit higher than it did in America. It opened at number 18 against... The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, but we account for only 
$109,788 of its worldwide gross. It is greatly divisive as a movie. It has a 51% Rotten Tomatoes score. The critics' consensus there reads, Though made with great skill, Funny Games is nevertheless a sadistic exercise in chastising the audience. It didn't get nominated for very many awards, and I'm sure to Hanukkah's dismay, the ones it did get nominated for tended to be from horror publications. <laughs> Mainly the, the, the biggest one here is the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, which nominated Naomi Watts for Best Actress and Michael Pitt for Best Supporting Actor. Michael Pitt tied for second place with Vinnie Jones from The Midnight Meat Train. But that is the production history of Funny Games. And to start off this discussion, I would like you to walk me through your reactions to it because you went in knowing very little about this i would like to know what you just your general how how your perception of the movie grew and changed and and especially the meta moments and the one sort of the big rewind moment how you received that coming in cold right so as we started you get all the stuff in the car they see their neighbors and stuff and i turned to john and said are you getting a very us vibe Jordan Peele's Us is kind of very, very similar in a lot of ways, particularly just at the beginning. Obviously, Us expands out into its own thing. That is a great moment when the orchestra, the boring rich people orchestral music changes into the the heavy screaming and yelling. That sort of tells you pretty immediately what this movie is going to be like. As soon as we saw the boys, Paul and Peter or Tom, as soon as I saw them, I'm like, "Mm, two clean-cut young men wearing polo shirts. Don't trust them. Oh, yes. They're very... They're very on-the-way-to-Mar-a-Lago kind of (laughs) outfits. Daddy, bring the car around. I want to go home and get my pony. The whole egg thing? After he breaks the four extra eggs, I'm like, mate, you're on your own. (laughs) The part that got me was when Paul is coming back to the house with the golf club, and he says, oh, did you give Tom the eggs? After having introduced him as Peter Mm. just before, I was like, ooh, that's some sketch shit right there. I'm really interested about your reactions to some of the meta elements because I already knew a lot of it going in. I'd heard about the movie through Reputation and that was actually why I added it to the list. So when when you get to that point where he's playing that twisted hot and cold game looking for the dog and he actually turns and stares directly into the camera, how did you receive that? I thought it was very interesting. A lot of the time, the stuff where he turns to camera feels very accusatory mm. which is like obviously the point yeah of what Haneke is doing it's not subtle in that regard I quite liked the reversing thing after she ends up shooting Tom slash Peter with the gun I think he's credited as Peter yeah so that's the name I use so what is interesting about this movie to me is something that I realized when I went and I looked at the trivia for this movie There's actually so many similarities between this movie and a real-life pair of murderers, Leopold and Loeb. Nathaniel Mm -hmm. Frudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb, usually referred to as Leopold and Loeb, 
were two wealthy students at University of Chicago who kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago, Illinois, in May 1924. They committed the murder, characterized at the time as the crime of the century, as a demonstration of their ostensible intellectual superiority, which they believed enabled and entitled them to carry out a perfect crime without consequences. The similarities are so similar that I'm looking at pictures of Leopold and Loeb. Nathan Leopold has a unibrow in the same way that Peter does. Hmm. That seems on purpose. Yeah. That, um, if you've ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope, yeah. that is inspired by the Leopold and Loeb case. They've actually inspired quite a lot of, of different movies. It's kind of a thrill-kill sort of situation, yes. but, but not totally. They, they liked to think that they were smart, but they weren't that smart. Yeah. I, I think that what is most effective to me about this movie is the way it takes its time. It's so unhurried the whole way through. There's yeah. no rush to do anything. There's not that studio thing of, oh, we've got to have a kill every, like, ten minutes. It's actually, like, got a very low body count for a horror movie. But the way that it sets up the tension is very careful and very very much in a sort of art house kind of way. And I think that's the thing that ultimately kind of undermines Haneke's point the most is that he's sort of talking about horror movies and violence in movies. But what he's done is make a really, really good one of those. Yeah. You know, mm. in setting out to criticise it and to make a point against them, he's actually made a really good one. <laughs> but I think yeah. if, if you're satirising or parodying, which this isn't a parody, but if you are discussing a genre, be it a musical genre or a film genre or anything like that, you want to make a good one of that because if it's a bad version of a horror movie, if if the quality of the thing sucks, you, your point isn't going to get across because people are like, oh, that, that movie sucks. But like, I think of that sequence where Paul pursues Georgie mm. uh, to the neighbor's house and like that's just a really tight, kind of remarkable piece of horror mm. filmmaking. Like that is really suspenseful it's really well choreographed and well framed and and really it's put together in such a finely crafted thing i mean hanake is is a incredibly gifted filmmaker mm. he's very technical obviously like every 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 choice is is quite precise and i think that the fact that that sequence doesn't have a commentary to it you know that's just a scary chasing. Well, I think part of that is what you said that Henneke said in that one interview of certain audiences needing this film. Mm. To get this film in front of people who he wants to talk to, it kind of has to be a horror movie. Yeah. Because that's sort of the point. Yeah. And I wonder if that's sort of the trigger of the reaction from some of those people that I, I talked about, the people that walked out, the the angry French New Wave director, that because he's being so straight-faced about it, they missed the satire, maybe. I think so. They took it at face value. We're ostensibly talking about both films, but specifically the US version. There were a few moments where the characters say something and it is the point of the thing. There's the line where one of the shits says you've forgotten about the need for entertainment yeah and 
that is a part of the movie that is very much making literal comment on the nature of the thing. Well, that's the whole thing, is once they kill the boy, that's why they leave, is because he wasn't supposed to die that early, and they've got to stretch this out to feature length. Yeah, but a lot of that is more subtle. There Mm. aren't a lot of... Like, there are moments where Michael Pitt's character does it, and he literally says to the audience, what do you think's going to happen? Yeah, place your bets, basically. Place your bets. And that game isn't for the family. That game is for us. Yeah. He's saying it to the family, but it's for us. And those moments come, but when those moments aren't happening, we are still left with this feeling of these actions aren't being done for the family. These these cruelties aren't being... They're being done to the family, but it's not because of the family. It's yeah. not for the family. Their performance isn't for the family. The performance that these boys are doing is for us. Yeah, that we are like the third torturer in the room, basically. Yeah. That the camera point of view is, as our point of view, is almost like that we are there participating in what is happening. Everything goes tits up when we arrive. Yeah. Through our desire to see this story, to see this story of a family terrorised, that we are enacting a kind of violence on them, that we are the cause of their their distress, is our desire to, to see their distress. Exactly. And it's a very interesting meta commentary on media itself does a story exist when someone is not audience to it does the narrative of a thing continue on beyond when the credits roll well, does the narrative alter through the presence of someone exactly consuming it's, it? it's it's the does a tree if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to witness it does it happen it doesn't make a sound i think it happens yes it does make a sound because the same like physical reaction with all of the atoms and things that happen when a person is present also happened then the statement presupposes that a tree has fallen a sound will happen whether or not someone is there to listen to it we've solved it send out a group memo everyone we've answered the question (laughs) a tree does make a sound if it falls in the forest when no one's around it's like that simpsons gag like What's the sound of one hand clapping and Bart's like, easy. Back to what I was trying to get at is everything at the beginning of the movie is begging us not to keep watching. The reason why there's that jarring slam into that really, and I'm sure the creators of that music wouldn't mind this, fucking ugly sound that Mm. this group of musicians made. All of that is basically like, run, don't watch this. Or you're complicit. But we keep watching anyway. I do think it is also important that for a lot of the actual violence, we don't see it. Mm. Yeah. A a couple of times we see it. And we see the aftermath of it, obviously. But for the moment, like, we don't see the dog get killed. We don't see the boy get shot. We don't see... We see Peter get shot, but that's immediately rewound because that's off script. Yeah. And we we see George get beaten. Hmm. Yeah, but it's not particularly bloody. And as a Mm. commentary against the rise of torture porn, we see only the facial reactions from the people when Anne takes her clothes off. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because this movie was a shot-for-shot remake of a movie that's made in 1997, but by the virtue of the fact that it comes out again 10 years later and so much has happened in the interim, it takes on a whole new thing. All of a sudden, it looks like it's tor- talking about torture porn. All of a sudden, it it looks like, you know, there are there are ways that you can 
just through this, the, the setting change. There's so much that you can map onto it in terms of American horror films and American media, but you can also map on a whole bunch of stuff in terms of American culture. Mm. Mm. Uh, you want to, if you want to go and map on a, a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, wealth, you can yeah. put that in there, sort of gated communities, um, you know, the separation of people by community, the separation of your neighbours through these big walls. If you want to go and talk about, you know, you can probably come up with a political slant for the fact that they are they are rich people. There's also the fact that these boys, because they, they, that's what they are, these teenage boys are committing heinous violence against these people and they're doing it for entertainment that seems to be trying to say something about the place of film and media as potential corrupting influence well yeah but also just by moving it to america 10 years later all of this stuff about columbine and all this other stuff starts to come into it or and even like watching it in 2022 young white males enacting this kind of sort of pointless nihilistic violence i mean it's an interesting thing that the subtext and the material the matter the subject matter of the movie can be so skewed like i talked about how when that came out austrian critics received it as a commentary on that um heimat film I think mm. it was called. Mm. It's it's interesting that it almost serves as a Rorschach test. Yeah. You yeah. see what your own background It's because there's so much see. negative space in the film. Mm. One of the things that's really interesting to me when you mention negative space is lack of backstory. Mm. We get several options for Peter's history, as presented by Paul. None of them are true. It's all just bullshit. And you're given to the assumption that these could be just two rich kids just doing what they want to do and having fun, or it could be a pair of lower-class kids dressed up, having stolen clothes and dressed up on a crime spree. I don't want to get, like, too, uh, to hell with it. Let's go crazy. The fact that Paul is able to manipulate <laughs> reality. Yeah. Like, how are we to interpret the reality that's being depicted. Are we to are we to view this film as an entirely artificial space? Or are we to Is he a god? Well not not necessarily that, but how are we to interpret Paul's intervention in terms of the relationship between the film's world and our own? How are we to interpret the fact that Paul can like beyond the obvious thematic relevance and the subtext there, beyond that, how are we to interpret the fact that Paul is talking to us? sitting out here in the real world. I think it's a situation that is sort of not answered, but explored in that final piece of dialogue between Peter and Paul when they're on the boat after they dunk Naomi Watts, after they ditch her. How they're talking about that piece of science fiction that one of them is talking about, and Peter says... When you overcome the gravitational forces, it turns out that one universe is real and the other one is fiction. How? How do I know? It's a kind of model projection in cyberspace. Okay, so where's your hero now? Is he in reality or is he in fiction? His family's in reality and he's in fiction. But is the fiction real? Why? Well, you can see it in the movie, right? Of course. Well, and it's just as real as reality. Because you can see it too. Right? Bullshit. Why? 
that's what that is trying to say. This is fiction, but it's happening in front of you. This is something that I've talked about multiple times on this podcast, primarily when I was talking about my favorite scene or sequence for Romeo plus Juliet. While literally these fictional characters do not exist, they exist in an emotional reality. They exist in an emotional space. They exist in a way different to us, but still at times when the magic trick works, very, very tangibly they exist. It is Brechtian in a sense, and like I said at when I was talking about Romeo plus Juliet, there's this amazing thing where it's always compelling when the director or the scriptwriter can accuse the audience of being involved, hmm. of being what gives a project life, essentially. Ultimately, they move on to a new family at the end because a new bunch of people are going to watch it. Yeah. Like, the moment we're done watching it and discussing it, someone else is. Or the idea of violence without a point, that that being a sort of a horror movie thing of movie after movie, that's what we get in Hannah exactly. view. Here we go, and, and another another round of torture for entertainment. Yeah, and, and that's the compelling thing. What responsibility do we have to the fictional worlds we create and engage with? You could be completely unwilling to engage with the thought experiment and say, oh, we don't have a responsibility mm. to fictional characters. They don't exist, which is a fair enough point, but... No one's going to have fun with you at parties. Oh, yeah. The people who talk like like us are like deep film philosophy and, you know, the nature of fictional worlds. We're so much fun at parties. <laughs> Bring the house down with our discussion on Michael Haneke's funny games. <laughs> I'm just saying it's important to yes and. Yeah. When you're engaging with an autistic work and not trying to beat it or defeat it or outsmart it. And where Haneke is involved... He's very much interested in the responsibility we, the audience has to the genre, not just the people making the films. Mm. The only reason people are making them, after all, is for us. Because yeah. after an artist creates a, an, an art piece, a song, a book, a movie, a video game, their relationship with the work usually ends there. Mm. After that point, it's the audience who picks it up and uses it in the way that they need to. They read it, they listen to it, they interpret it. It's the audience's responsibility now. And that is, like, we, we've, we're talking in very big words about this, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to what this whole movie is doing is Michael Haneke poking the audience for 90 minutes and saying, why do you like this? What is it yeah. about this that you think is fun? Mikhail, you made a good movie. Man, you made a good movie. Mr. Haneke, I like this because you're very good at doing this. Yeah. But, like, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's something I thought about. It's something I wrote essays about when I was at university of, like, why horror? Why is that a mm. thing? And I and he sort of broadened that out as to, to suggest what does the proliferation of a certain type of horror, or more broadly speaking, a certain type of violence, what does that say about us as a society what does that mean for our responsibilities as not only as storytellers but as receivers of stories it's a lot of heady stuff and it is a movie that demands critical thinking mm -hmm. and if you're just sitting there like oh it's i don't know friday night let's watch a horror movie that's not going to work you need to be engaged and you need to be really picking up what hanake is putting down for that 10 minute long shot because it doesn't have catharsis mm. 
Exactly. But, but for that 10 minute long shot, like that's really a point I want to get to because I think it's so extraordinary that I literally, I timed it. It is nine and a half minutes long. The single shot after the boy is killed and the, the two leave, that is just the parents reacting. It's nine and a half minutes long of them both lying there. The camera moves slightly to the left and then back again slightly, but that is the only movement. It is stationary. There's no cutting away. There's no, like, moving through time. Haneke is forcing us to sit and watch two parents react to the violent murder of their child for 10 minutes. The initial aftermath, the stuff that always gets skipped over in every other horror movie, we see it in extreme detail. And I think that if you're not connecting with what Haneke is saying, if you're not picking that up and, and interacting with it and turning it over in your head the way that he wants you to, then that's going to be... That, I mean, there are different ways that people would receive that. Some people would be bored by it. Some people would be repulsed by it. But for me, personally, I get why it's there. On an academic level, it's very effective. It makes a lot of sense. For me, it's just a tad long. I'm okay with it. Being there, yeah. it's just a bit... See, that's interesting to me. Like, what what do you think... Because I, I actually think that this is maybe the question that Haneke might ask you as well, is like, why do you think it's too long? Did you grow bored of it? Or did you grow unsettled by it? Because I think the answer to that question says different things about how yeah. you're receiving the movie, and both of those answers are pretty interesting. Because do you, do you want the torture to continue? Like, Haneke would probably slap the shit out of me, but... <laughs> he, he'd come up to you, he'd jump onto your desk and be like, exactly. do you want them to come back? But the fact that I was bored says a lot, and I am a horror aficionado, we all are, mm. and what we've come to expect is to not linger with the victims. Yeah. What we've come to expect and what we've been trained to expect is to jump to the next bit, jump to the next bit, follow the killer as they kill. But you see the genius of that, and I sort of saw you kind of smile slightly as you realised what I was getting at there, that he's he's asking you that question. Like, he kind of wants to elicit that reaction in some ways. He he wants you to analyse it. The fact I was bored works in its favor it, it's it's that negative space thing any reaction to this movie is a correct one he yeah. he seems to implicitly expect any he, reaction yeah. disgust enjoyment boredom yeah but not only that he he has through the structure of the first half encourage us to analyze our reaction to that moment and so when whether you're bored whether you're repulsed whether you as i was kind of like I don't quite know how to how to pass my reaction because I didn't notice it was 10 minutes until it was done. I was like in the moment. I was horrified but hypnotized in a strange way, in a, in a way that I was just like right there in this this awful moment. And I don't know whether that means I was not enjoying it, but like whether I was... It would be interesting to know, and I, I'm sure Haneke would never say, because I've actually read some interviews with him, and he's very cagey about ever giving answers to, you know, what he wants. Or what he's Yeah, exactly. He thinks it undermines the effect of the movie. But, like, what Haneke thinks that means... Uh, like, Jean, we've expressed two different reactions here. Harley was bored by it by the end. I was sort of really wrapped up in it and kind of in awe of it. What was your reaction? I was stunned by the starkness of it. Mm. I was trying to put myself in the headspace of Anne, 
of she's trying to get out of this room but she doesn't want to look at the body of her son but she needs to walk she needs to go past him in order to get her hands free and her feet free and i was just sort of questioning oh fuck is george senior dead is yeah they leave that they leave that for a while don't yeah, they is this a situation where she's alone and how much longer of the movie is there how much more can this person conceivably <laughs> withstand how much can she take before she just completely breaks down what's that line that paul says right before they leave because that really stood out to me. He says something about Peter having no sense of pacing, mm. which then it almost seems like, and now right after that line, here is a 10 minute shot. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's something like, you're an idiot, Tubby. When you're counting, you don't kill the person who's counted out. You kill the one left over. What's wrong with you? But he tried to run away. Guess so what? That's no reason to get trigger happy. Don't you have any sense of timing? What time is it? Almost 12. Shit! They're spent. Come on. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Which is a very interesting way to look at it, as that scene is kind of coming down. Yeah, it's it's that whole idea of, well, we've been racking up the tension, racking up the tension, and goddammit, Peter, you've, you've reached the end before we were supposed to. So now we've got to start this whole thing from the beginning again and to do that we need to give them the illusion of safety yeah and one of the interesting elements to me as well is what it would be like for naomi watts as an actor and performer to do that 10 minute take because the pace of that is not determined by haneke it's determined by her and her physical ability to move through the space while restrained. I'm pretty sure that there was, like, it is a similar length in the original as well. I think that it's by Haneke's design that it lingers. I, I feel like I should express my thoughts a little clearer on, on it. I said I was sort of compelled by it, and I feel like I wasn't clear enough. I, I, I find it really hard to get the words as mm. to what why it's working for me, but it, it, it is almost like this, it's almost like this feeling of a nightmare, you know? Mm. They're yeah. so wrapped up in it and the reality seems so extreme, but it's sort of like that dream space where everything's so immediate and far away all at once. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I get that. I, I get that, yeah. I find it really difficult to put into words what sort of magic spell that that scene is working on me, this hypnotic thing, but I find it kind of an awe-inspiring piece of filmmaking and the entire time I'm watching it, I'm kind of like, is he, is he really doing this? Is he really going this direction? I mean, I mean just like... It, it goes so long before she even tries to move. Mm. Her son's just been shot in front of her. And it's that sort of thing of like, I don't know, it lingers with the characters and it lingers with their headspace of it gives her time to react to that. And he, he's not working on our time. He's working on her time. You know, mm. he doesn't care that we are sitting here for 10 minutes watching very little happen on screen. He wants his characters to have that moment. Okay, here's an idea. As soon as the boys leave, it's no longer about us. Yeah. It's about that. When the boys are there, it's about us. We lose our... Um... We lose our control. Yeah, we lose our control, but we, we, lose, we lose our point of explicit connection in the character of Paul. We lose the guy who's communicating with us explicitly. I don't want to overstate how often he talks and winks to the no, audience. No, he, he only does it a few times, but it's enough that we know he's aware. And that's an interesting question that I would like to move on to is Peter. I think it's interesting that Peter doesn't seem to be aware that mm. we're there. Mm. 
it doesn't seem to be aware that he's a character in the movie, that he doesn't have the power that Paul has when Paul talks to the audience or acknowledges us or reverses time itself with a TV remote. You know, that's that's let's not forget that little detail. That's important. But I actually think it's interesting that Peter's response is to hearing Paul explain his backstories. It's like he's reacting in real time to his history being rewritten. Mm-hmm. When he's talking about like the tragic lower class backstory, Peter's all crying and <laughs> stuff. But the moment he starts talking about, oh, he's just a rich kid disillusioned with the world. And then he's smiling as <laughs> if he wasn't crying at all in the first place. Well, that's the thing is that you you almost get the impression that Peter is... Peter's a character. Well, yeah, he's as much of a pawn, he's as much as a, a fictional construct for Paul's manipulation as the family are. That's why he can rewind his death. Yeah. That's why he is the, the guy in charge. So then, if we're going to expand that out, then what does that make Paul? We were talking about what does that mean for him and what does that mean for him, for our relationship with the film world. Are we to then interpret that Paul is a stand-in or a proxy for the writer, the director, the filmmaker, the, the storyteller? He's not a stand-in for Haneke because Haneke condemns no. his acts. He's a stand-in for horror. Yeah, he's exactly. He's a stand-in for the genre. He's concerned about structure. All the time, he's concerned yeah. about structure. He's like, you know, we need to make this fun. You know, he's talking to the audience. Who are you going to... Do you think they'll make it out alive? You know, this whole suspense thing. The way that he chastises Peter for killing the boy too early and the way that he sort of leaves. I forget. It, it's, it's a little more explicit, I think. I get the impression, at least, that it's a little more explicit in the in the German language. In the German one. language one, he literally winks at the camera. Right. I get the impression that there's a little. It's a little more explicit in that one that he's leaving to get it to feature length. <laughs> like, like that's kind of the dark joke of it. But then at the end, the the rewinding. It's it's like a rewriting of the story. Like you said, Harley, the the, the backstory. He's trying out different backstories for his characters. He he tries a draft that that kind of gets away from him. And Peter dies, and so he reverses that and starts again. If you're looking at it through that lens, then he is—he is the storyteller. He is horror. Mm. He's the genre obsessed with the recipe, with the with the structure, with the purpose or purposelessness. Which makes a kind of sense in terms of the way that he is framed as a personality. That you have the family who are you know, very grounded characters. You have Peter, who is kind of an idiot. But Paul is very articulate, very concerned with control and, and managerial stuff and, you know, framing. Like like that whole thing where, where Peter Peter is the one that starts the encounter. He's the one that comes to get the eggs. And he kind of keeps mucking it up by t- being too creepy. He's like giving the game away too early. So Paul rocks up to take control of the situation. It's not just at the beginning that he bounces between Colin and Peter and Tom. There's a moment in the movie where, within the span of a sentence, he calls him both Peter and Tom. <laughs> but then also the kid gets away. It's Paul that goes to collect him, to bring him back on script. He tries to fire the gun at Paul. Nothing happens. You can't kill the narrator. And, and here's the thing. The boy is as likely to shoot him with that gun as... A word is to tear apart a page of a book it's on. Mm. It's it's not going to work. But then what, one of the little details that I love the most, it, it's seated so, so far at the beginning that you think it's going to come back is the knife on the boat. Mm. And mm. 
you know, the camera lingers on that shot of the knife falling into the boat when the, the, the dog starts barking. And then right at the end, there's Naomi Watts and she's trying to get out of a bond and she sees the knife. And everything about structure and film has told us that this is her moment. She's going to, she's going to figure it out. But again, it's Paul intervening. It's Paul who sees it. And he, he's almost exasperated at that point. He's like, because finally Look. there's a gap in. Now that is what I call Olympic spirit. And it's almost like the filmmaker being like, what? You, you you don't think Naomi Watts is beautiful? You're talking about the stripping scene. Yeah, it's this weird moment where Peter's like, what are you talking about? This is a movie. We only get attractive people in movies. What are you talking about? I didn't read it necessarily that way. I, I read it as sort of him putting in the requisite TNA moment from, from any yeah. dodgy slasher movies, except it's again Hannah poking at the audience. It's like, you like bare skin, right? Mm. Well, A, I'm not going to give it to you. But also, at the end of that, Paul's just like, I'm bored of it. Yeah. yeah. Paul honestly seemed disinterested. He's only doing it because the audience has come to expect it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's also also Henneke being like, shame on you for wanting to see this woman being tortured. Shame on you for wanting to look at that. Yeah, well, yeah, it lingers entirely on her reaction. Mm. It's it's her face. That's what we see. You get the uncomfortable part of it. Yeah. But what you were saying, Sean, about that whole idea of, of beauty dynamics and, and them sort of having that argument about whether Naomi Watts is attractive or not, how old she is, uh, you know, whether she has fat on her or, or not, all of this sort of revolting image stuff, that is... I mean, if you want to drill down into it, then that's all about the treatment of women in in horror films. Mm, it's the yeah. you know, or, or just well, Hollywood more more generally, right? Yeah. It's the casting agents being like, "Is she pretty enough? Is yeah. she young enough?" Exactly. Like, if you want to like really go broad with it, you can even like imagine that as as I don't know, a sort of twisted version of a runway. Mm. I don't know. Maybe maybe we're going too far afield here, but I think that this is a movie that leads to a lot of those thoughts because Haneke is so clearly asking you to examine so many aspects of, of the culture and especially our reactions to them. And look at that. We've spent so much time without actually talking about the performances. All of them are great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're all really good. Tim Roth is doing truly so much mm. in the scenes he's given. There was an IMDb trivia item that I wasn't able to confirm elsewhere, so I didn't put in the production history, so take it with a grain of salt. But according to IMDb trivia, he has said that this film kind of traumatised him and that he'll never watch it because the kid playing his son looked too much like his own son. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's got to be a rough space to put yeah. your actors into at all times. Yeah. But also, I mean, credit to Brady Corbett and Michael Pitt for their performances as well. I mean, especially Michael Pitt. Michael Pitt is doing this puppet master thing really well. And he has such intense eyes. Yeah, he he captures that uncomfortable dynamic of horrifying, but we want to watch him do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I think it's a beautiful weaponization of Michael Pitt, who in the past had always played these angelic kinds of figures. Even in things like The Dreamers, The Village, he was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, he was in Last Days. He was in Dawson's Creek. Exactly. Yep. He's these young, attractive, 
Hollywood-looking characters. It's a weaponization of his skill as an actor to be able to twist that into this perversion. Which is a little interesting because he's played so many villains since. I only know him as a villain. Yeah. His posture is also really important as well to his performance. Naomi Watts is really, really good here as well. It's such a physical performance for her. Particularly in that long take. And Mm. I appreciate what she's doing at the beginning of the movie as well, when Peter is basically doing his bloody Three Stooges routine in the kitchen. How she's just gotten to the point where she's fed up and it's like, honestly, before you destroy anything else, just go. Just go. (laughs) It comes in a carton, doesn't it? Just go! (laughs) Another interesting thing is, when Paul isn't there, when Paul goes to get the boy... Peter starts acting like Paul. Mm. Mm. In a way, he gets more confident without Paul around. Also, doesn't he eat raw steak? I'm not sure. Maybe, yeah. I I seem to remember something like that. That was what was in that wrapping. That was raw Mm. steak. The great thing about this movie is it's not just commenting on the audience, it's commenting on the creators as well, because we've got Peter and Paul as the vehicle of those actions. Well, to me, the ending is just really, really fascinating. Almost as like an afterthought. Paul pushes her off the boat, and they just rock up at another person's house just across the lake, and he comes in and asks for eggs once more. Yeah. It's just, this movie is done. Why not start another? It's almost a second thought. I mean, yep. they're, they're in the middle of this other conversation. They've still got these loose ends. Just push her over the edge. It's mm. so sudden and without... Further discussion. What time is it? Just past eight. Good. We're at feature length now. Let's get rid of it. It's that mean-spirited thing. He doesn't even play fair to his own game. No. Because why would he? It's cruel throughout in that way is that it it continually makes choices. Like the knife thing at the end. It continually makes sure that, that we're always any bright spot is immediately doused. Like Yeah. Like the cars. When she... Doesn't go out to the first car, but then goes out to the second. And that's a great shot, though, when Tim Roth is in the house and he hears a noise and turns around and the, the golf ball rolls out into the hallway. And he just, mm. you see his face drop like he knows yeah. exactly what's I also happening. love the detail that he can't bring himself to stomach the bite of bread that he took. Because mm. he just doesn't want to... The nourishment doesn't seem to have a point anymore now that his son is gone. Hmm. Well, there are no IMDb Parents Guide entries here. There's nothing fun in the IMDb Parents Guide for this movie. So why don't we instead move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Michael Haneke. It's it's an extraordinary cast he's assembled, but really this whole thing only works because of him. He wrote and directed it. It's a remake of a film he had made earlier, and it is so precise, so assured, so confident about what it's doing that, as I said, it, it almost threatens at times to undermine the movie by being too good at its, at its horror bona fides. But it is a bold piece of filmmaking. It's fairly bracing and unique and original and he makes choices that again i i mean that 10 minute long take i mean i just 
that's that's a defining moment for the film for me. And the fact that he would make a choice like that and the fact that he pulls it off in the way that he does definitely makes him my MVP. And so it's weird to call it my favourite scene or sequence because it is so horrifying, but that 10-minute long take has got to be the scene I'm going with because it is, the def- like I said, the defining moment of the film. It is the part of it that I will think of whenever I think about funny games. It is the moment where the movie's thesis comes through so completely. We're stuck with these characters in the aftermath of horrible violence. We're seeing their, their reactions. We're being made to experience that with them. I mean, it's like those, you know, that awful mean way that some people used to train dogs where, you know, you pee on the carpet and you'd shove their noses into it to make them look what you did, you know? It's almost like he's doing that to us in the audience. Mm. And so I've got to go with that scene because it's just... I. I'm still kind of amazed by it that he that he actually did it and that it works so well. Like I said, I didn't realise 10 minutes had passed until I checked. I knew it was long, but I was just so caught up in it. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast's patron saint character, actually, John Lithgow, I've got to go with George. I don't think that he necessarily fits either of the two bad guys, not in the same way that Pitt and Corbett do. I think that, however, he would be able to bring the humanity to George and make that stuff just as heartbreaking as as Tim Roth makes it. He could fill that same space. He could hit those same marks. And, and you know, he's a great actor, so he can he can make all of that material work just as Tim Roth does. And, you know, there are three characters he could be cast as. <laughs> you know, there aren't a lot of options here, but I'm going to go with George. For me, I would have to say my MVP is Panike. He is assured, precise, deliberate, an auteur in all the sense that the word can be used, and it's honestly astounding how dedicated he was to his original project as well, translating it here. He knows what he wants to say and is very, very good at saying it. So good that, like Lawson said, approaches to just being too good to to make the point, but ultimately it's just, he did a really, really good job. My favorite scene or sequence is the bit where he reverses time after peter gets killed it shows that while he's been nodding to the camera this whole time he actually does have full control nothing happens in the movie without his say so nothing happens without paul's express consent and when things go off book he can just change it as soon as he wants honestly it is that that fully showed me how hopeless the situation was for the family. And yeah, that has to be my favorite scene or sequence. Also, brilliant squib work on the blood splatter. Oh, absolutely. Just outstanding, outstanding effect. Who I would recast with John Lithgow, George Sr. Really, there's nobody else because it only works with two young men as the killers. Even when Lithgow was a younger man, he could have done it, he was talented enough at the time, but... I don't think his energy quite matches. No, no. He, he definitely he definitely couldn't play Peter because Peter seems like... John Lithgow just... You can see the gears going behind the eyes. You can see the intelligence. Yeah. He, he can't play dumb. So that would leave Paul, and I don't think the energy is right. No. I think that John Lithgow has the history and career to make him enough of like the quintessential dad figure. Mm. Like, there's an archetypal element to him that he can bring to the character that I don't think Tim Roth quite has. Tim Roth is very, very good here. Don't get me wrong. But I've seen him a lot as villains, Mm. so he doesn't quite strike me as 
archetypal in the same way that John Lithgow does in the role. So for me, my MVP goes to Michael Hinky. Rachel Heinke. He's phenomenal here. He does such a good job at framing the scenes. The camera is simply just an extension of him. And everyone is working in concert to fulfill his vision. It's a good thing that he would be a- he was able to show them the original. Hey guys, do this. Do this, but with a few more years experience. Good? Let's do it. And the script is amazing too. I'm glad that he was able to give it a first shot and then was able to do it here because it seems like he's learned what he needs to do to reach an American audience. The script and the film itself is just saying so much, and that's due to him. For my favorite scene or sequence, I think it has to be the moment that Peter gets shot, and then the reversing, because it shows you that in so many more ways than one, in more ways than any human being has been before, Paul is in control. He's in control of this situation completely. And... That in itself is saying a lot about filmmakers and story and the place of the villain within horror, of being the thing we come to see. We don't come to see people get away. That's not the point of a horror movie. We come to see people get terrorized. If we wanted to see people be happy, we should have gone to watch The Happy Little Elf, but we didn't. (laughs) We're watching funny games instead. And for who I would get character actor John Lithgow to play, I would get 20-year-old him as Paul. Because I see where you're coming from, but I feel like he would be able to play that kind of yuppie-ish, dressed in golf clothes, coming in and beating people with a literal symbol of wealth, a fancy golf club. I think he would be able to play that with such intelligence. He is a character who can have intelligence behind his eyes. And if this was a film that was made in the 50s back when, you know, he was young, I feel like he would have absolutely crushed this role. And it would have been really good. But no, I would give the role of Paul to young John Lithgow, because I feel like he'd have the right energy for that. Now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-funny games podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you start us off? I know it's going to be weird to say at the beginning of next week's episode, the pro-funny games podcast. It's a weird movie to have to say that about, but I think we Mm. need to be. Because I think this is an incredibly impressive piece of work. I don't actually agree with a lot of what Haneke is saying about violence in the media. I think he sort of overstates its influence. I think... We influence the media, not the other way around. But I think all of the stuff he's doing is so audacious and so interesting and so bold. There's just so much going on here, so much under the surface, so many themes to unpack and knots to unwind. The performances are fantastic. It's brilliantly shot. I can't not be a pro Funny Games uh, guy. I, 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 It's an incredibly impressive movie, so I'm voting yes. For me, I'm a tad colder on it than you are, Lawson. But I'll have to say, yeah, it's it's kind of what our pro vote is built for. It's well-considered, it's well-performed, it is precise, incisive, divisive, and it knows exactly what it's saying and knows exactly what it wants to be. It's brilliant commentary, brilliant performance, 
brilliant filmmaking. So, yeah, it's a pro vote for me. It's a pro vote for me, too, because its quality is undeniable. Like, as a thematic piece of work, it is rich and deep and worthy of your two hours of discussion, potentially, for minds superior to ours. And it's also quality filmmaking. Everything is considered, it's tight, it does everything that it needs to, and even when it's taking a while, that's on purpose. So, it feels weird considering that I spent however long talking about how weird it is for people to enjoy this kind of thing, but I'm pro-funny games. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, we are a pro-funny games podcast. The weirdest that that sound clip has ever felt yeah, <laughs> in its yeah. use. It's sweet victory? <laughs> oh, God help us if we ever do an episode on Schindler's List that's going to be extra troubling. It's like it's like at the end of, like, you ever watch those old network shows where they couldn't do anything but the theme for the end credits? Yeah. So it's like the end of the West Wing where the president gets shot and, like, cut to black, everyone's screaming. Then all of a sudden, and it's like, okay, that's, I, I didn't need that. I could have just done with silence rather than that. <laughs> it's like a sitcom having a character go into hospital and someone says, I'm sorry, it's terminal. Everywhere you look, everywhere you see. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> what? If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Calendar. If you join myself on the pro side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen funny games? Either version. What do you think of it? What are your readings of the film? I'd be very fascinated to know that. What was your reaction to that scene? I think that's yeah. interesting. Also, which one do you like? Because I find that is an interesting thing. I know that I know that the director says that this is the version, but I don't know. Maybe you like the color palette of the older one. Yeah. So all of that is on the Twitter. The links to the blogs and the Twitter in the description of the podcast, wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. But do like, comment, and subscribe. It helps the algorithm notice us and spread us to more people like you. The consequences of the Gobbledox attack were grave. One of the gates has been severely damaged, uh, allowing access from the outside, but they're working on patching that up. A lot of security has been posted outside of that torn part of the gate to protect us from the mascots rampaging outside. Many of our robotic guards have been destroyed as they attempted to stand in front of the Gobbledox on his way to get the (laughs) precious, precious chippies. But thankfully, no severe fatalities but there have been mass injuries just don't get in the damn thing's way he just wants the chippies aren't the robots aware that they screwed up by making all of these mascots real well they weren't intending to be real they became real due to a process of like animus and buying one's own con essentially sure but there's got to be like uh like the scientist that accidentally made like frankenstein's Creator, you know, Dr. Frankenstein. Is, There's is there be a, a bit Victor of that. Frankenstein robot? Is this thing going to end with the Gobbledoc pursuing the, the chief robot to Antarctica? <laughs> like, <laughs> Or or is this 
robot version of Victor Frankenstein conflicted about the differing personifications of the character between the book and the films. All I know is they're working on fixing the gate, like mending all the damage, but I don't know how we're going to handle it if more of him come. Wait, more of him? So the Gobbledock is not singular, because I got the impression from the ads that I saw that the Gobbledock was singular. Oh, no, the, the narrator does say Gobbledocks, never mind. Fuck me. They're from the planet Doc in the narrative. They're aliens? No, in the narrative, in the original advertisements, they are aliens from the planet Doc, so there are multiple Gobbledocks. I need you to stop saying plural. Please. So you're telling me... <laughs> One of them's enough. ...that these, like, little elf by way of the rapist to Shawshank Redemption guys... Yep. ...that they are so obsessed with Smith's chips... All they can say is chippies, and yet they somehow achieved space travel. Yes. Advertisements are weird. Mascots yeah. are weird. Well, Lawson, what do we have coming next week? Something remarkably different, I hope. Yep. Next week, we will begin the first of a, a trilogy of episodes that we will be talking about. I mentioned the other week that I am in the midst of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we will be... Starting on that, uh, we'll be doing three episodes on it, one for each phase, basically. Next week's will be The Avengers. The week after that will be the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And the third week will be Infinity War and Endgame in the same episode. So if you would like to follow along at home, all of them are available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, the Avengers is available for rental or purchase on the YouTube Fetch and Apple stores. It is also additionally available for purchase on the Amazon and Telstra TV store. If you are a lunatic who would rather purchase it on Telstra TV instead of YouTube, Amazon, Apple, or just plain old disc, then you can find it there for $18.99. Tune in next week for The Avengers. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. 